Hey everybody, welcome to another Sermon Extra. Uh, this is coming from 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon's famous prayer for wisdom. And just uh, two quick things I want to look at today. The first is just how do we interpret Old Testament narratives? And I want to um, us to look at a schema of just how we can properly interpret Old Testament narrative in two fundamental directions. And then secondly, I want to look at some of the words used for um, wisdom, understanding, discernment in this passage, and just look at a, a holistic picture of what making wise decisions really looks like. So first, let's start with uh, the question of how do we interpret the Old Testament? And I was talking to a friend a week or two ago and talking about things I was thinking about uh, to preach on. And he said, you know, isn't this a allegorical interpretation? You know, you're applying um, Solomon here to Christ and stuff. And we had a good discussion of how we get to us from the biblical text. And that's the question, right? These things were written in a very particular context to a very particular people group. This is about Solomon. So by what measure do we say, yes, but we also learn of Christ here? And also by what, what measure could we say that we learn about ourselves? And so first, um, I want us to look at a couple biblical texts here. Um, we know that the Old Testament speaks of Christ in many ways and foreshadows him. There are, and uh, there's a line here. There are some things in the Old Testament that are what we call types of Christ, things um, or people that are very distinctly um, pointing towards Christ and are fulfilled in him and find in him um, the pinnacle. So you think of, say, the sacrificial lamb. It's a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice. Where some things might be more loosely connected, and we might not call them types, but they might still, by way of analogy, um, speak of Christ. So we can think of there maybe more like the uh, manna in the wilderness and how Christ is the bread of life. Though the manna wasn't intended um, to be a, a very clear, strict picture of Christ, but there's similarities for how Christ describes himself, and they actually bring in the manna in John chapter 5. Uh, in John 5, verse 39, Jesus says this uh, to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Uh, the whole of Old Testament is meant to bear witness, to speak of Christ. Um, it speaks of him in the way it prefigures him and foreshadows him. Um, he says also in Luke 24 to those people on the road to Emmaus that, um, that, that, that he testified to them in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms of the things concerning himself. Um, Christ is spoken of in all the scriptures. Not absolutely every little thing speaks of Christ, but definitely most of the major themes and characters. And so we see, especially in the life of Solomon, that the office of the kingship, it prefigures Christ, who is explicitly spoken of as a king and is meant to be the final true king. Uh, the throne of David is given to him and the language of the son of David is used all the time of Christ. Because what that throne represents is very much what Christ's rule represents. And so, in the sense, we can see that the kingship foreshadows and speaks of Christ. And so, in that way, uh, each of the kings can represent Christ in a particular way. David does in the greatest extent, Solomon as well, and then 
these kings can typify Christ more or less depending on how they rule. So we can see Christ in the Old Testament, and that's appropriate. And the authors of the New Testament do this all the time. Um, In Psalm 40, the author to the Hebrews pulls out a couple verses that David was speaking about himself, and he applies them directly to Christ. And um, I don't know if you remember when we uh, taught on Psalm 40, there's that way of, um, if you think of the focus on a camera, there might be something in the foreground or something in the background, and you can change the focus on a manual camera to either focus on what's near or what's far. And so as we look at a lot of these typological relationships in the Old Testament, um, the, the immediate narrative has a focus on Solomon, but we can shift the focus to the background and Christ can come into clearer view as we do that. So we can, we can interpret the Old Testament Christologically, which is in a sense to interpret it narratively, or sorry, not narratively, historically. Um, we need to always think of every um, narrative in the Bible as being, say, think of a horizontal line. And on this horizontal line, you have the great events in world history. The primary ones being creation, fall, redemption through Christ, and new creation yet to come. And locating where events are on that line helps us trace the influences throughout that historical line. So when we look at Solomon, we look at it in light of creation, right? That God made a nation to be peaceful and prosperous. But we look at it through the lens of the fall, that because of the fall, now the kingdom is in turmoil. There's sin. Not even wise Solomon does everything right. But then we can look forward from that point um, to the future great works of God. How does this point to Christ? Ah, well, we're looking for the ultimate wise king who will not fail where Solomon failed and will reign forever and have an eternal kingdom of peace. Um, we, we look forward into the church age and we see that, oh, we're also a kingdom. We're called um, to be kings and priests on the earth, according to Revelation 1. And so there's a sense in which also the kingdom of Israel, it, it speaks of the kingdom of the church. And then it also speaks of the far future, the new creation, which will be that perfect kingdom of peace, where the lion will lie down with the lamb. We can see some of this in Isaiah chapter 11. And so we can apply scripture as we move through that line of historical events, and we see the relationships to each of them. So if you take New Testament, instead of looking forward to Christ, you're looking back to Christ. And there's more continuity with where we're at, because we're in this age of the church in the New Testament, um, after Christ, waiting for new creation, just as um, after Pentecost, the people in the book of Acts are. So we can interpret scripture on this historical lens. Um, Some people call this biblical theology when you apply it just to the Bible. But you can actually move further than that um, to where we're at now into the future. Okay, so we interpret on a historical lens. But there's a second way that we also interpret the Old Testament, where we're focusing in particular, is um, not just historically, but there's a theological way to interpret it. Okay, so we were looking at the historical. The second main way is theologically. And so in this view, if we want to get to us today, 
instead of tracing that flat line of history, imagine a triangle. Okay, so history is that bottom line of the triangle, and it just goes directly from history to now to future. At the top of the triangle is God. And so when we look at the Old Testament, the other way to get to us is to go upwards from the historical point directly to God, and then from God directly to us. Here's what I mean. Um, we might call also this the static perspective instead of a progressive perspective. So if you take um, Solomon's prayer for wisdom, we see that God was pleased by his prayer. That's telling us something about how God relates to humanity, something about um, God, that God is pleased. He takes pleasure in dependent prayer. And we see that principially. And because God never changes, we can see that there's a principle being illustrated in the story that God is pleased by dependent prayer. And therefore, that theological principle, because God never changes, that can come down from God right to us today. And we can learn that we need to be people who pray dependently, depending on God, because that part of God's character never changes. Okay, let me keep explaining. Some people, they, they really um, downplay looking to the Old Testament for moral examples. So they'll say, hey, don't look to the great characters like Abraham and Moses and David for examples of how to be moral. No, they show us how we fail and how we need Christ, and they just point forward to Christ. And yes, they do point forward to Christ, but they're actually meant to give moral examples. Hebrews 6.12 says that we are to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Okay, we're called to imitate faith. And if we see just a couple chapters later in Hebrews, Hebrews 11 gives us a whole chapter of examples of people of faith exercising faith, and it commends them. And so that means we need to be imitators of their faith, not of their sin, but of their faith. Okay, though we need to look at examples. And 1 Corinthians 10 brings this out the most closely. 1 Corinthians 10, um, I'll just read the whole passage starting in verse 1 because it's really good. 1 Corinthians 10. Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, already it's connecting baptism to the Red Sea crossing. There's theological connection. They ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This is a Christological interpretation, what we saw previously. But God was not pleased with them, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Verse 6. Now these things become examples for us. Okay, these are examples for us. So that we will not desire evil things as they did. Okay, so right off the bat here, we see that God wants us to learn from the example of the sins of people. Verse 7, don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to play. Right? So that incident of the golden calf is meant to teach us to not be idolaters. 
Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people fell dead. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. Nor should we complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as examples. And they were written as a warning to us on whom the end of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you're able to bear it. Okay, so we are meant to learn from the sins of people in the Old Testament. And how can they be examples for us? Well, because sin goes directly to God as a reflection of what is opposed to his character. Good comes from God's character. It reflects his character and doesn't change. Evil is the opposite of God's character. It represents God's permanent disapproving view towards sin. So all good works, all evil works, all righteousness and wickedness that we see exemplified in the Old Testament, they reflect something of the character of God. And because God's character doesn't change, those elements that are illustrated for us come down to us today. And so we can learn from the example of believers in the Old Testament in their sins, but also in their faith. And this is part of Scripture's meaning. Um, the meaning of Scripture is more complex than we often like to admit. We look at it in, on this historical plane. We look at it on this theological plane. And not only can passages tell us about sin and righteousness, but if we see something revealed of the character of God, um, a statement of his praiseworthiness, again, that doesn't change. We can praise God for that today. Uh, there's a really good article called The Complexity of Meaning, written by Richard Pratt. And I'll just read his conclusion. It's worth reading in full. I'll try to link to it in the show notes. Um, but he says, in this lesson on the complexity of meaning, we've discussed the history of viewing the literal sense of scripture as its singular grammatico-historical meaning. And we've described the full value of a biblical text in terms of its original meaning, biblical elaborations, and legitimate applications. And so what Pratt argues is that we have to understand scripture according to its grammar and its place in history. Get that literal meaning, that literal sense. But he argues that that literal sense is not where God's intention for scripture stops. But biblical elaborations are part of that meaning, right? So when we look at Solomon's prayer for wisdom, every other biblical passage about wisdom or about prayer can help bring fuller meaning to Solomon's prayer for wisdom. Packed in even just the words, the words used, understanding, discernment, wisdom, we can import the biblical elaborations of those themes and gain a much richer of understanding of what it means to pray for understanding, wisdom, and discernment. And biblical elaborations on themes are what we end up calling systematic theology, where we pick up the threads of topics that pop up throughout scripture and bring them into a unified whole. Biblical elaborations are part of scripture's meaning, as R. Pratt argues, legitimate applications. And that's what we've been talking about. How do we legitimately apply scripture to our life now? And I've argued that we can legitimately apply scripture 
on the historical plane as we see the relation through God's great events, and we can apply scripture to us on the theological plane as we see examples of faith and sin or God's character that also relate to us today. So I know this is, has been a bit heady, but um, basically, if I was to summarize, what I'm making an argument for here is that now as we're looking at a series on Solomon, that there are two primary ways I will be applying it. And that's seeing Christ in Solomon. And so looking at Solomon and seeing how does Christ do these same things, but in a greater, fuller, more perfect way. How is Solomon's kingship, in a sense, a weak version of Christ's kingship and relating it to Christ for us to see gospel light? But there's a second way too, which is also to see Solomon as a believer and relating it not only to Christ, but also to us. And so we can look at Solomon's examples of faith, obedience, and disobedience and glean principles for our lives. So we can see Solomon both as a type of Christ historically, and a type of the believer theologically. And so we can apply these texts in both ways. So in chapter two, we primarily applied Solomon to Christ and saw how Christ's kingdom comes through judgment. And in chapter three, we primarily looked at Solomon as a type of a believer, praying to God for wisdom. Now we can also see Christ there and see how Christ in Isaiah 50 is told, is said that God awakened his ear morning by morning to hear and learn, that he might teach as one of the learned. And so we can see that Christ in a greater way, he depended on the Father's wisdom, and he was full of wisdom. Um, Isaiah 11 also prophesies about Christ, says that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Solomon doesn't just have to be an example of the believer praying for wisdom, but also of Christ, the one who had the spirit without measure, the spirit of wisdom and understanding in full, what Solomon could have only hoped for. So that is just some thoughts on how do we interpret these Old Testament narratives and especially apply them to make them relevant to today. Okay, now just a shorter little discussion of wisdom. I want us to just learn from the three Hebrew words that popped up in our text in Solomon's prayer. Uh, we have the word Shema, which is translated understanding, the word Bayan, translated as discernment, and the word Chokmah, which is translated as wisdom. Okay, so Shema, this word for understanding is a word that's primarily used for hearing, um, to hear something or to listen or to obey. And so when he's asking for an understanding heart or an understanding mind, the mind and heart are very intertwined in the Old Testament. Um, it's asking for a heart that is receptive, that, that is attentive a, a heart and mind that listens to God's word, that listens to those in God's world, that really hears and perceives so as to understand. Um, it's, it's a receptive attitude. Okay, and secondly, this idea of buy-in, translated discernment, um, is the idea of consideration or prudence. That is, this is not just the intake of information, but it's the weighing of evidence, the consideration of principles. 
right? Um, Solomon says he wants this in order to discern good from evil, right? It's considering, it's weighing the good, seeing the bad, really understanding how this bears on the situation. And then if we take these two together, I think that is what the holistic picture of this chakma is, wisdom, which is, um, it can be administrative wisdom, ethical wisdom, religious wisdom. And this is really um, insight. It's knowing how to apply this evidence, these considered principles, to the situation in the right way. It's the whole process in view. Because if we want to make biblical decisions, really that's what wisdom is. It's good decision-making, right? Who doesn't want to make good decisions? The making of good decisions takes wisdom. And um, here's, here's a quote from Tim Keller I like on this. He says that wisdom is making the right choice even when there are no clear moral laws telling you explicitly what to do. Some decisions require only knowledge, like the proper medicine to take, and some only compliance with rules, like whether to commit adultery or not. But no Bible verse will tell you exactly whom to marry, which job to take, whether to move or stay put. Yet a wrong decision can be disastrous. This is really what wisdom does for us, is it allows us to take the slivers of principles, allow us to look at situations that seem gray and discern what parts of that gray are actually black and what parts are white. And wisdom here takes two parts. It takes the intake of information and then the understanding of the information, right? How can you know what the Bible says unless you actually bring in the information? But the information doesn't just need to be brought in, right? We know you can read without comprehension, but you have to intake the information and then process the information such that you really understand. And go, okay, here's the big picture of what I think we need to understand if we want to be wise people, is that we need understanding of the situation and understanding of the scriptures, Biblical decision-making requires an astute analysis of the contemporary situation and an astute analysis of the relevant biblical data. You need both. If you only know the principles of scripture, but you don't really understand the situation, you'll give the wrong solution because you'll be applying principles that don't apply. And sometimes we don't even say know our own hearts. We... And then we fail to apply scriptures properly to us. So if we take Keller's example of knowing the right person to marry, you can know that the Bible says you need to be equally yoked. So you want to marry a believer. You want to marry someone who, a woman who is godly and virtuous. But how do you know the, that the person you are, say, dating is those things? You need to know that person well. And if you get the person wrong, and you, in your analysis of them, consider them to be godly and virtuous, um, but you haven't really gotten to know them well enough or gotten enough advice or looked closely enough, you might be totally wrong in saying that, yes, this person is virtuous and godly, right? You need to know the person you're dating super well in order to know to what extent the biblical data actually applies to them, right? You have to understand the situation and the principles. 
And both of them require an understanding heart and mind. That is a, a really listening and hearing heart and mind. If you want to give someone advice, you really need to listen to their story. You really need to strain to understand. Too often we want to jump to the solution we think is fitting before we've actually understood the situation. We need to be real listeners to ourselves, to others, to our contemporary world. We don't just need to be scriptural exegetes, but cultural exegetes if we want to really apply scripture. But we also do need to really understand scripture. And we need to understand scripture in its context. We have to understand the meaning of scripture that we don't um, apply it haphazardly, right? We need to understand what Philippians 4.13 means when it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because our understanding and exegesis of that verse affects what situations we apply it to, right? We, we don't, if we understand in context, we're not going to apply it to the, to the final game um, of your sports tournament, right? But we'll know to apply it to a situation when you're struggling to be content in suffering, for example. So we need to be people that really listen to scripture, listen to wise teachers of scripture, read study notes and commentaries, because we have to know the situation and we have to know the principles. We need hearts that love to listen to God's word, to hear his voice, and therefore can apply it wisely to situations we've understood well. So let's be better listeners, both to ourselves, others, the culture, but also to God, his word read, his word preached, that we would really meditate on scripture day and night, be like that tree planted by streams of living waters, um, like Joshua, to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Because um, we want to be wise people. Culture is complex. Navigating the Christian life in a culture that is in many ways hostile to faith is tricky. Um, it's hard to know what are good decisions to make with media and life in this world. There's much complexity, and so there's great need for wisdom. Um, so let's be people that listen well, that think well, and do pray every day to the Lord for wisdom to govern our lives, to rule our homes well, to be wise in business, in the church, in family. And as we saw in James chapter 1, the Lord promises to give wisdom to those who ask. So let's be people that are asking daily, that are really, as Proverbs 2 says, um, that we would be those people that listen closely to wisdom, that direct our hearts to understanding, that call out for insight and lift our voices for understanding, who seek it like silver, search for it like hidden treasure, that we might understand the fear of the Lord, discover the knowledge of God, because as Proverbs 2, 6 says, the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So let's seek wisdom from the Lord this week and wait on him in all things.